This could go on all night, right? We return to our little series on the cross. Each week, I, this two weeks is all we've done this, but both weeks went into it knowing that the cross was the, the topic, not knowing exactly where that would take us. I don't know that you can put a number on the amount of individual ideas you could attach to a series on the cross. What, what is it, 50 sermons, 100 sermons, 500 sermons? There's no way to really put a limit on it because it's the fulcrum around which Christianity revolves. It's really Christ crucified. We brought that out last week in a message called The Scandal of the Cross. And I'd highly encourage those watching or listening to go listen to that, to try to bring yourself into this world that the New Testament um, really builds itself on, is the cross and the resurrection. And so as we go in this series, there'll be times when we, we reach forward to the three days after the cross and grab the resurrection to show the validation for the cross because the fact that Jesus is not still in the tomb but he is resurrected is the validation that the cross means more than merely a man dies. Um, we could spiritualize the cross. We could talk about the blood. We could talk about sacrifice and scapegoats and atonements. Uh, we can talk about judgment and wrath. We can talk about substitutionary death. And we can get into a thousand arguments about what is and is not proper theologically sound cross teaching. And if you need an idea of what that looks like, social media would take you down that road pretty easy. You can get on somebody's message board or post something about the cross, and there's going to be 20 Christians that jump in to try to tell you why you're wrong, but the cross wasn't that, the cross was this, the cross wasn't that, but the cross is that, the cross is kind of that, that's a little bit of this, and you could be discouraged pretty quick um, and pretty confused. So I'm not trying to add to that noise. I'm not trying to add a bunch of junk and a bunch of stuff to say this is exclusively what the cross is. So every week I just go to the Father and say, okay, what about the cross this week that is fresh and exciting? Not new as in it's never been thought of before, but what is it? Let me, let me see something from you that I can frame the cross in a way that helps this group, that helps people who watch, who need the cross alive and well, who need to see it. Um, and who need to see it effective in their lives. This week, we title this, The Cross as a Burning Bush. I do this because I see a correlation between the burning bush story of Moses and the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an easy correlation in regards to Moses and Jesus. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus. But as you sort of peel the onion back on that idea, you'll find that there's a lot of things that I think are worth looking into between the Exodus story and the, and the account of Jesus. First of all, Jesus' death on the cross is an Exodus. The word Exodus is departure. And whenever Jesus is standing at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah and Moses show up, remember that moment. And the gospel says, one gospel account, I think it's Luke, says he, they spoke to him of his departure. They spoke to him, and the Greek word there is they spoke to him of his exodus. They literally use the same Greek word that's at the top of the book of Exodus. So as Israel comes out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, an allegory for out of sin, out of addiction, out of death, out of the dark, out of this world, they're brought out by Moses into the promised land. Jesus 
goes to the cross, a new exodus, and brings us out of sin, out of addiction, out of darkness, out of this world, into a new promised land that is inaugurated by a resurrection. And so it's an easy connection to see the exodus and the cross and how those are similar. Um, There are no straight lines in nature. There are no straight lines in the Bible. Um, I think it was da Vinci that popularized that idea in art. Uh, that, that nature does not provide you with a straight line. Everything has a gentle curve. And so he found form in the way hair flows, the way water falls, the way a muscle ripples, the way the sun breaks this, the horizon. There's no perfectly straight line in nature. And maybe that's a good allegory for there's not a perfectly straight line between today's thought and tomorrow's revelation. Between who you are today and who you'll be tomorrow is not ever a straight line because nature doesn't know how to do that. What it does know how to do is meander a step to take you a little bit off to the left or a little bit off to the right to curve you down into a little bit of a valley up over the next rise. In literal terms, a day of depressions and discouragement and darkness and tears out of which you grow something because in that fertile soil comes a heart that knows how to handle pain, a heart that knows how to comfort people who don't have hope, someone that becomes valuable in the world that would never have been that valuable had they not walked down into that valley. There's no way you would have chosen the valley, but you got it, and now out of it comes another rise, and it's a little tough to go up that hill, but the view is spectacular. And to get there, you have to live that. That's the Bible story, and We shouldn't be surprised that the Bible meanders a bit, that it takes turns and that man gets in the way and ideas are filtered through men and prophets and and the writings. And and then here comes Jesus, the sunlight that blasts up over the top of the horizon of the New Testament. And we realize that this meandering journey, this, this trail that goes left and right and up and down has really been taking us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so if I make a leap from the burning bush to the cross, no, there is not a straight line from the burning bush to the cross, but it is not hard to find it through a few twists and turns and valleys and mountains. It's not hard to see that those two things correlate, that they have very similar DNA. And I want to try to show you that through a, uh, a series of texts. Um, one thought before I put any up, um, Robert Jensen famous systematic theology. A lot of people that went to seminary had to set through a copy of, or at least get their hands on Jensen's systematic theology, distilled decades of his life down to try to define God in one sentence. And that's impossible. I've been working on that my life as well. I didn't do as good a job as Jensen. This was his sentence. And I, I dare someone to do better. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. That's probably the best way to correlate the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. The Old Testament deliverance and the New Testament deliverance. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead. That affirms that Jesus raised from the dead. Whoever did that's got to be God. And he's the same God that raised Israel out of Egypt. If you believe the Old Testament at all, then the most important story of the Old Testament is the Exodus. You could probably say this. The most important story of the New Testament is definitely the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And the most important story of the Old Testament, we act like it's the Garden of Eden, but it's not, not for your redemption. The most important story of the Old Testament is Israel comes out of Egypt. It's been the hope of every sinner, the hope of every slave, the hope of every addict, 
the hope of every one of us who ever hoped that tomorrow could be better than today. So if you can get a little bit of Exodus, you can get a little bit of the cross. Well, how did we get there? I want to put those three together as curvy as we can, no straight lines, right? Exodus 3, 4, 14, John 8, 58, Galatians 2, 20. Old Gospels, Epistle. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me to you. Jesus in John 8 says, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Paul says to the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not a very difficult curve to pick up two similar words in all three verses. I am that I am. I am has sent me, has sent you. Jesus calls himself the same I am. By the way, this is the same in the Greek Septuagint. This line in John 8, 58 is the same line in the Greek Septuagint as Exodus 3.14's I am. So Jesus uses the exact same phrase, which is one thing that caused this next verse, by the way, in 59, they pick up rocks to stone him. Not, not just because they don't like the sound of his voice, but they don't like the fact that he calls himself the I am of Exodus 3.14. And then Paul takes the I am and crucifies the I am with Christ, his own I am. So Paul puts all of us into the story of the I am. God, the I am, sends Moses to be the deliverer. Jesus comes and calls himself the same I am that blazes forth from the burning bush, the bush that burns but is not consumed. And then Paul takes all of us, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm still here. I'm living and I'm breathing, but I'm crucified. And before we're done tonight, we're going to break, we're going to, we're going to land right here in Galatians 2.20 with Paul and try to really formulate what this whole thing means for us. Because if the cross is a type of the burning bush, what does that mean? So let's start with this thought. The burning bush reveals God as I am. It serves as revelation. It also serves as an invitation. It's a revelation of who God is, but it's an invitation into who God is. Because Moses turns aside to see the bush that burns, but it is not. We're going to read that text in a moment. The bush never jumps straight into your life. It burns from afar and calls you. Salvation is always a call. It's not just an interruption. It's a call. And so it is a revelation of who God is, but it's an invitation into something deeper with God. And then the I am is crucified at Calvary in the form of Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of both God and man. He is God in flesh. He is a man. And so when the I am goes to the cross, it's the same I am from the burning bush dying at Calvary as all of us as well. And then our I am dies there as well with Jesus. Salted beneath the fire of God's love. I use the phrase salted beneath the fire of God's love because Jesus said you shall all be salted with fire. What does that mean if not Calvary? Because we don't look for God to drop fire down on us in a literal sense, but we see the cross as the place where a sacrifice is consumed, much like the burning bush. The cross is our burning bush. 
It's the guarantee that something will vanish, but what matters will remain because at the burning bush, the fire burns, but the bush is not consumed because what matters stays there. But you never encounter fire without it burning something up. In both the Old and the New Testament, if fire is involved, something vanishes that walked into the arena. Even if it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Old Testament story is very clear to make sure that the reader understands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go in shackled on their hands and their feet. And that when the fire is turned up seven times hotter than normal, they meet the fourth man in the fire, the one who looks like the Son of God. And the story is very clear to say to you that when they came out, their hair was not even singed, but the only thing burned off of them were the shackles upon which they went in because the Bible wants you to know that you never encounter the fire and walk away the same way, ever. You cannot encounter the fire and not leave a piece of you in the furnace. Whatever comes to the fire, what is valuable, what is precious, what is pure, or as Paul says, that gold, silver, and precious stones shall survive the fire of God. I actually think Paul lands on his judgment passage. The closest thing you get to what heaven and hell is all about is in Paul's Corinthian letter when he says that we shall be burned, we shall all be judged by fire, and we shall find that some of our deeds are gold, silver, and precious stones, and some of them are wood, hay, and stubble. And he goes, and that which is burned up shall be burned up, but he himself shall be saved as if by fire. What in the world does that mean if not I take what I am to the fire and the fire takes what doesn't belong, whatever doesn't need to be. It burns it away so that what's left is exactly what needs to be and that that isn't something I only need to encounter when I die. That is something I hope to encounter now that I'm alive so that I can be gold, silver, precious stones in the eyes of the Father. And the only way to let that happen is to have my encounter at the cross. So if the cross is nothing else, it's a place where I go meet the fire of God as placed into the body of Christ. But we do have this beautiful story from the Old Testament. And if Old Testament stories are shadows of New Testament substances, then the substance is the cross and it shadows a bunch of stuff, one of which is Moses' burning bush. Um, this, this is something that, was, that, that, that actually crossed my consciousness from a, a quote from one of the popes um, who had made a passing reference to Calvary serves for the Christian what the burning bush did for Moses in that we encounter God there and we have a revelation of his glory and his love and then it consumes a part of us and I'm botching that quote it wasn't that wordy but it really got me to rolling with that it got me to thinking interestingly enough one of my nuggets of grace popped up this week those are these little seven or eight minute video clips that we put up that our ministry puts up on YouTube every day. I don't run those. Um, I've got somebody that just, I, I guess he picks sermons at random and he just listens. And if he likes six minutes, he goes, oh, that's good. And he puts a nugget and he lays out a month's worth of them and they pop up every day on YouTube. Um, so I don't know what's coming. <laughs> and, and one of them popped up the other day and honestly, I don't watch them because I, I get enough of me. So the last thing I want is an unsolicited nugget of grace by me in popping up on my timeline, but it popped up and I let it run long enough to hear myself from our first John series in a sermon that was called the perfect picture. 
of God or perfect presentation. I don't remember exactly how I titled it. And it was John's twin peaks of revelation. God is love. God is love. Cause John in first John says, God is love. And then a few verses later he goes, God is love. And so the whole Bible, I made this statement in the lesson. So the whole Bible is running, rushing towards these two mountain peaks. So all other revelation of God is, is sloping upward till you get to John and then you go, God is love. God is love. So it doesn't get any higher than that. It's the highest form of God and it's the highest form of Christology. There's nothing bigger than God is love. And in that, I watched the next scene and we transitioned to the burning bush. And I made the statement that God tells Moses, I am, but he doesn't say what he is because he leaves it out there. And then we don't ever really know what God is till we see Jesus. And so I had actually kind of forgot about that. I mean, we teach all this and you move on to the next week and you move on to 7,000 other things that you're doing and you just go right past it. And so it kind of jumped out at me when I said it again, that God lays out, I am, but God doesn't say, I am this, 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 or this. It's just, I am. And so then the old Testament is trying to land on God. I am what? I am this. I am that. I am that. And then Jesus comes along and goes, I am. And so we go, ah, that's God, which leads me now to say this. There is no definition of God that starts with anything you see God do in the Old Testament. Every definition of God starts with Jesus. So everything else is I am with a blank. I am. But then Jesus comes in and goes, I am. No blank. I am. Look at me. And that's the disciples go, oh, that's well and good. Show us the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. I know that's hard for you to get, he's saying, because you've been looking for I am what? I am vengeful. I am mad. I am angry. I am holy, I am just, I am Jesus. And that's God. The burning bush then reveals God as the I am. I am what? I am Jesus, so that we come into union with that definition of God. So that when we are crucified at Calvary, what we are doing is crucifying all other options. I am's die. All the I am's I could be die so that I can be what he says that I am. My I am dies to become the I am. My version of I am, I am this, I am that. All of that has to take a back seat. It gets nailed to the cross with the I am. That's us entering into his death. This is why the cross is not just Jesus died for my sins. Because if Jesus just died for my sins, the cross is a far off event by which somebody paid for my wrongs, and I know I should have been the one that paid for them. But if the cross becomes my participation, if the cross becomes the place where I die with him, then I need to look at what was really happening there because that means some part of me died there as well. To do that, we use the shadow story of the burning bush. Let's read the first five verses of this story. Moses was tending, this is Exodus chapter three for the listener. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Scholars are split. It's probably 80-20 at this point. 80 being Horeb and Sinai are the same. There's still some scholarship that says Horeb and Sinai are two different mountains, but odds are Horeb becomes the same place that Moses will wander the children of Israel right back to to receive the law of God. It's probably also the same mountain that Paul goes to Arabia and settles on to receive the new covenant. So there's a lot of 
theological happenings at Horeb. He leads the flock there. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush does not burn. That third verse is crucial because it shows us why Moses would turn aside. I've lived in an area of sagebrush and, and, and wildfires. Um, in Southern California, a wildfire is nothing. That doesn't mean they don't do damage. It means there's a bunch of them. And so you get to where you're like, ah, oh, do you see this sage fire? There's a field on fire over there. Um, not, you don't turn aside to see it. In fact, you run from it. You don't run to it. And so for Moses to turn aside to see it um, means that there's something unusual about this fire. Contained within that verse is the key. This is, there's a lot of New Testament theology jammed into that third verse. He goes to a site to see a bush that burns, but is not consumed because fire equals consumption when, or smoke equals consumption. When the smoke is coming off the mountain, you know that something is burning up. Smoke goes up, ash goes down. And so there's a separation. Here's a hard substance. The fire breaks that smoke, ash. There's nothing left in between. Whatever's there is charred, gone, useless. So for there to be no smoke, is an indication that something weird's going on. If the bush burns, there's got to be smoke. So Moses goes, I'm going to go turn aside to see that which burns, but is not consumed. The reason I say there's a lot of theology here is because this is our indication of the flame of God. Because we were told at the top of the story that it's the angel of the Lord burning in the middle of the bush. So that when God burns, he doesn't burn up. He's not looking to destroy, he's looking to reform. So his fire is to call us, to call us out of where we are, off the trail, and notice he will not throw the fire into the middle of your house. He'll burn the fire and call you to him because Calvary always happens on a hill outside of your city. You don't get, you don't, you don't get to die conveniently. That's Calvary. It, it, it never gets to be in the, in the place of your choosing. It's come unto me. And so we take that walk and we go to the place where the bush burns, but the, or the, the, there's a fire, but the bush does not burn. Or I think the old King James says, a bush burns, but is not consumed for. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, that's covenant God. That's Jehovah, by the way, all caps, L-O-R-D. So when God, the covenant God, sees that Moses turns aside to look, God calls to him from the middle of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, 10 times in the Bible. I, we, we did this recently in a lesson. feels like it was here. Maybe it wasn't. I get confused where we were. That when God says the name twice, anytime the Bible says the name twice, there's, an, there's a pronouncement that's special. And 10 times in the Bible, we get a double name usage. This is one of them. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. So we start at the approach upward to the cross. I know it's a burning bush, but it's our cross. We're gonna, when we're finding out why. Our approach upward to the cross is to leave where we were to come to where he is. And the first thing we're told is to slip the shoes off of our feet. And that's because this, to be without shoes was an indication of slavery. This is the reason that the father puts shoes on his prodigal son. Remember when the son comes back and the father puts a robe, shoes on his feet, ring on his finger, kills a fatted calf. Why does he put shoes on his feet? You go, well, because his feet hurt. No, because it had a much higher connotation. To come into the place without shoes meant you couldn't afford them. That's what the servant wore, the slave wore. So the father put shoes on the prodigal son. But at the story of the burning bush, we take our shoes off. Because 
We voluntarily remove them at the cross. We surrender our will to do His, and only then do we walk into the identity of sons. And so one of the first things that happens when I come to Christ is that I shed off of me all of my own self. I'm giving myself over to follow Christ. It's no longer what I want. It's no longer all that I choose. I want my choosing to line up with your choosing. I pray your will for my life, not just what I want to go do, but I want to do what you bless me to do, what you anoint me to do, what you call me to do. I, I believe the passion will follow the call, but what has to lay down first is all of my old stuff, all of my old desires for what I was going to do so that I can meet Christ and then be what he would have me to be. And so the first thing Moses does is take his shoes off because now you belong to him. And so the first thing we do at Calvary is we lay ourselves down because now we belong to him. But we don't leave the cross shoeless because like the father's story of the prodigal son, he slips shoes onto our feet so that we know an identity of sonship, so that we belong to him, so that we are part of who he is. In the next chapter, Moses begins to question God. In Exodus 4.1, Moses answered God and said, suppose that the people will not believe me. Suppose they will not listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. This is pretty common. This is just kind of a representation of our fear that interjects itself into the story. God, what if a bunch of bad things happen to me? What if I'm not able to do what you, you called me to do? The encounter that happens next at the cross to me begins to be indicative or allegorical for the kinds of things that happen to us as we confront ourselves at the cross and we confront our salvation at the cross. It's okay to walk to the cross with questions. It's okay to come to the Lord with questions. One of the most devastating things that we do to young converts is shut them up. They come to Christ and then we don't want to hear their questions because they, they, we, we well, they ask immature questions. We should never shut up the questions. The questions are for a purpose and a reason. And I've also found that sometimes people who are young in this are asking better questions because they're asking questions that a lot of us stopped asking because we were afraid by asking them it meant we didn't have faith. But they don't know that they're not supposed to ask them. And so they ask them, well, what about this? And we go, well, you know, you just got to believe the Lord for that. And sometimes it's the worst thing we can do is just, eh, just blindly believe instead of wrestling out things. And so God doesn't get mad at Moses, but he has to confront some issues in Moses' heart because sometimes that's what the questions show us. Suppose they'll not believe me. Suppose they don't listen to my voice. The Lord has not appeared to you, they say. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And God said, cast the rod on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. This is quite a miraculous little event. So he has his rod of authority. His rod that identifies him with his tribe in Israel. His rod that identifies his whole heritage. Everything in his life. This is his driver's license. This is his social security card. This is his, whole life. This is his college degree. This is his, bank. this is his 401k. This is everything he is. That rod represents your whole heritage. And God says, throw it down. So part of it is let go. So throw it down and watch what it becomes because what it becomes is a snake. And you don't have to be a theological genius to know that the biblical story, here's how deep we are into the Bible. And we've already met a talking snake that pulled all of humanity into, a, into error. So we don't have good snakes at this point. 
and, the, and our story is slim. And so to put a snake back into the story, it's not going to be missed by the Hebrew audience that something very big is going on. And so Moses flees from it because that's what you do to snakes. And why does Moses flee from it? Because our biology is freak out. The snake tricked you once. He'll kill you now. That's kind of where we get the Eve story is we didn't get fooled by a badger. We didn't get fooled by a porcupine. We didn't get fooled by a giraffe. We got fooled by a snake. And there's something about that imagery that then works its way back into this story. Verse four, the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And in one of the most bold, audacious moments in biblical history, parenthetically, he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. I always, as a kid, thought we should have spent a lot more time in church talking about this moment right here, how bold Moses was because of every miracle in the Bible, that's the one I couldn't believe. You can part the Red Sea, you can drop Goliath with a rock, you ain't not reaching out and grabbing that snake by the tail. And it became a rod in his hand that they might believe that the Lord God their fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob has appeared to you. What's happened in this story? Remember, if we're taking the, these stories as shadows, here's your cross, there's a shadow that falls somewhere in these Old Testament stories. So the shadow of the cross, the burning bush, then what's happening around that burning bush is indicative of what happens to us at Calvary. And so here's what I think is going on. The cross forces us to confront the snake within us. It lays bare the reality that our rod, our authority, our identity, our source, we could have went on and on and on and on and on on what that rod is about our own mental state, our own psychological state, our own physical prowess, our looks, our money, whatever we are that we hold. And we go, I got this. We are forced at Calvary to realize that it's really not a rod. It's a snake. It's got us more than we've got it. That's the danger. And that when we let go of it, we get to see it for what it really is. We get to see that it's dangerous, that, that all the while that we were trying to hold on to it, it's corrupt and it needs redemption. We grab it by the tail. I, I love that Moses' story doesn't end with him dropping the rod. It becomes a snake that slithers off into the wilderness because we can really turn that into a salvation message. When you come to Jesus, you let go of the stuff and it run, God makes sure it runs as far away from you as the east is from the west. Well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? But we know it's not true is the problem. There's something inherently true in Exodus 3 that what I think I am, when I let go of it, I realize is dangerous and wicked and will sneak up on me and bite me and trick me. And that the only way to overcome it is not to let it slither off into the darkness because whatever slithers off into the darkness is still in the dark. So the only way to overcome it is to, ugh, is to reach down and own it again. Because it's easy to sometimes to let go of it and then go look at how bad this is. But to own it again, to reach down and to grab that part of us, that's the, that's the encounter at the cross. That's me coming to the cross. I slip my shoes off. It's not about who I want to be. Here I am. And a lot of it's tricky and deceitful and sneaky and mean. Mean as a snake. But it's not just me releasing it to slither off and be ignored. It's me owning it. It's me doing the truth. 
And you grab that. And I think it's why Jesus tells his disciples to go out and be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There's a part of you that is valuable but troubled, that struggles, that needs the redemption of the cross. There's value in all of us, no matter how wicked, no matter how faulty, no matter how sinful. There's value. The Father sees a value we can't see and wants us in on it, to own it, but we dare not confront the snake without the cross. And that's where the Bible takes the snake. That's why when Israel gets in the wilderness and Israelites start getting bit by snakes, what's the remedy? God tells Moses, take a snake, take a piece of bronze and make a snake out of it and stick it on a pole and hold it up in front of Israel. And as they look at the snake on the pole, they are relieved of the venom. Overcome the venom of the snake by the snake. Jesus goes, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as Moses took what was wrong with you and judged it in bronze and stuck it up in front of you so that you could own it, I take what is wrong with you and judge it in the fire of my Father and hold it up in front of you so you can own it. So that at the cross, what was wrong with you can become a part of the fire of the burning bush. That what needs consumed can become consumed. And one of the reasons why so many of us drag so much junk around is because we've never reached back down and grabbed hold of what's wrong with us and accepted the redemption that comes from dying with Him at Calvary. And we don't own it because we put on a mask, but that's not really my problem. And in our world, the snake slithered off into the darkness. We feel better about it because we don't hold on to that, but it doesn't make him any less real. Here's the phenomenon of biblical literature. Don't miss this. This is so easily missed because we're obsessed with watching the news for futurist eschatology that we miss the most powerful narrative device the Bible has. The Bible opens with the snake and closes with the dragon because the longer the snake slithers, the bigger it gets. So if it slides off into the dark, guess what he looks like by the time you get to Revelation? And rising up out of the sea with multiple heads and multiple horns, the same snake you threw down and ran from at your conversion rises up in the middle of your world and demands your loyalties. And that is, wow, that is the cross in a nutshell. What's what needs to be happening there? The opportunity for what can happen there. We dare not confront it without the cross because in the cross we find our hope. Let's go one more. Exodus 4, 6. Furthermore, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand in your bosom. So you take that, take that outer robe and put your hand inside of there. Lay that in next to your body. So he did. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in there again. And he drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. What's this mean? I think the cross shows us our sickness. And it shows us our need for healing. And we are cleaned by owning our uncleanness. 
Not from running from it, but by putting it very close, by realizing that it's ours, because only when it's ours and we're going, the I am that is my sickness is going to the cross, only then can it do any good. This is why I tell believers a little therapy might not be so bad for you, because the reality is, is sometimes we're lying to ourselves about what's wrong with us. And somebody else might cause us to put our hand up in front of our face, which is what Moses does. And when he first does it, he's fine. So God has to sort of reverse engineer this. Go, let's mess you up first. Put your hand in there. Boom. Uh Uh-oh, leprosy. Where'd that come from? It came from within you. I had you put that in there and look what came out. Leprosy. How are we going to get rid of it? You can chop your hand off. You can let the snake roll off into the wilderness. Or we can look at the cross as fighting against and, and, and working against the things that work against you so that what's right about you can be restored. So let's put it back in there again. And when it comes out, it's a, it's a process of owning what is us. Realizing that as we go to Christ and the cross, there is something that happens in owning our uncleanliness because there's never going to be permanent value in running from the snake. And there's never going to be permanent value in hiding from our leprosy. We can't do it. Here's, this is all burning bush stuff. And yet, it's all Calvary stuff. What you watch Moses do at the burning bush is what God is asking us to do in an encounter with him at the cross. This is why I don't think there's high value in a... And this is the kind of stuff that... If, if, if any questions about literal readings bother you, Go ahead and hit stop on the video now, okay? If you're okay with it, then keep going, all right? And I would say this. This is why literalist readings of the Bible bring you the least amount of information you can use. Because a literalist reading of the Bible has you with a snake in the garden, and you're trying to figure out if it has legs or not before the fall. And we waste all of our time trying to figure out, did he fly into the tree? Did he walk into the tree? Why was the snake able to talk? Rather than choose an animal that we have an affinity and a a natural fear for and make it represent a conversation with ourselves. And that conversation offers me the chance to trust me or to trust the tree of life. And now the Genesis story's got a lot of good stuff to say to you. And none of it has to do with feet and wings. It has a lot to do with you. The story then becomes you dealing with your conscience, you dealing with yourself and watching what happens when you refuse to do that. Or watching what happens when you turn inward to self instead of allowing his tree, his life to do what it will do in you. And so now the bush burns, but is not consumed because the fire of God has met the bush, the tree of our lives. And forces a confrontation there. That's what Calvary becomes on behalf of the whole world. And that's why we're called to the cross. It's why a mental ascent to the principles of Jesus is not enough to follow Jesus. You say, I love Jesus' teachings. I'm just going to go out and try to do what Jesus taught. You probably will make the world around you a better place. But you will carry everything that's wrong with you. 
And you'll drag it into trying to live the Jesus principles. It's meeting Christ at Calvary and allowing the I am that is in you to be crucified there. As Paul would say, Galatians 2.20, I have been, I used the King James Version when we opened this tonight because he uses I am. So it was very convenient in the English to put I am, I am, I am. I use the new King James here. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's Christ that lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I'm still alive in the flesh. Paul admits, why not admit it? You're writing it. You have to be alive in the flesh because I'm only actually alive in the flesh. I'm only actually able to continue this because of who Christ is. I've given up who I am so that I can receive who he is. I like how Eugene Peterson says this and we'll land with him. And I added a little context to kind of bring you in. It's actually more than verse 20. It's about at least 19, maybe part of 18. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so that I could be God's man. (laughs) That's a good phrase. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. I like that. In fact, the scholar's Bible, I think, translates it as my ego all the way through. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or that I have your good opinion. I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not quote-unquote mine, but it's lived by faith in the Son of God. I think it's scholars that says, the ego that I have left only survives because Christ. But it's lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. That's a good landing spot. I'm not going to go back on that. I think Paul ends up where Moses ends up. A confrontation with the burning bush. Moses doesn't go back to being who he was. He leaves the burning bush and he goes forward. He's never the same man again. Because in reality, when you meet Jesus at the cross, you are never the same person again. You cannot be. You've had too many honest conversations about the snake and the leprosy that you brought to the party. And you'll never be able to see yourself the same again because you know that snake was real and you know that leprosy was real and you know they were yours. And what the burning bush taught you is whatever you'll bring to me, I can reform. I'll burn up what needs burned up. I'll create what needs created. The cross as a burning bush is not a one-time event for you. Hear this. The cross as a burning bush is not a one-time event for you. It's not you go meet Jesus and you get saved. And then you go do all these Christian things and go to heaven. The cross as a burning bush is all of us continuing to realize, perfect tense verb, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been, I am, I ever shall be. I am always crucified with Christ. I'm not not crucified. I'm always crucified. What does that look like and what does that mean? We're going to get to do a bunch of these, I hope, a bunch of these shadows to substance ideas where the Old Testament lays out a story that doesn't really make perfect sense until the cross comes along. 
And then at the cross, you go, hmm, that story might mean something more. And it might mean something for me. It's not just this cute little story from the Old Testament help me remember what the history is, but it might have something relevant to do with my soul. I can't encourage you enough to identify yourself in the I am that was crucified at Calvary. As Paul said, and we quoted it last week from Galatians 6, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I'm crucified to the world of the world is crucified to me. The systems of the world crucified to me and me to the systems of the world. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for the cross and what the cross has meant to me in my walk and my, my salvation and my Christianity. But, but I, I thank you for this tonight because this has been a, this has been a, a, a fresh revelation not a, not a lot of things, Father, that you haven't put into my consciousness or heart before, but things that you brought to real vivid color in me today that I have been excited to lay in front of your people, because, not because revelation is its own reward, but because of what it leads us to. It leads us to this life of letting you do what we've been working so hard to do. And Father, as we learn about this through the stories like the burning bush, may we see that what you're really doing is revealing yourself to us. And, I, and all you're asking is us to do the same thing. Reveal who we really are with all of our ways that sometimes are, are like snakes and sometimes are leprous, but we own them and we bring them to you so that you do the reform that only you can do. And as we go through this series, teach us what that looks like. We thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.